there you go. Another thing we can add to how did South Africa change? We suddenly changed from being a production-led wine industry to being a market-led industry. And we started deciding to maybe give people what they want to drink instead of yeah, making that's, people that's don't want re- to drink. That is an absolutely really good point. And one I hadn't really thought about yeah. before until you verbalized it just now. That's uh, And that transition has been a, a train wreck. Hello and welcome to the Ex Animo Wine Co. podcast. I'm David Clark. Ex Animo Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website exanimo.co.za for more on what we do. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa with a sale and movement of wine is at least now forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We are using the internet to record these podcasts and it doesn't always behave. So apologies for any issues with the audio. I've tried to edit it to make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have Master of Wine, Kathy Van Sale. Kathy is the Associate Editor of Platter's Wine Guide, the most comprehensive wine guide on South African wine, which is produced annually. We originally planned to have her husband, Philip, on this episode too, who was the editor of Platters, but he was feeling ill on the evening, but we'll have him on, a, on at a later date. Kathy is an energetic cheerleader for the South African wine industry and is fiercely independent in her opinions and actions. You don't become a master of wine without a high level of nuanced knowledge of the world of wine, and this is what I wanted to talk to her about, where she sees South Africa sitting in the world of wine and where we can improve. Kathy and I are good friends, so this episode is perhaps a little more casual than some of the other episodes in this podcast, but I think that's helped our discussion in tackling some of the topics we talk about. But I'll leave that up to you, dear listener, to decide. Kathy is an open-minded person who has the respect of the entire South African wine industry. Not bad for someone who passed the Master of Wine on a bet. She also has the same haircut as Viper from the original Top Gun. She's a bit of a gem. I give you Kathy Van Sale. MW. I'm joined here by Kathy Fanzale. Kathy, hi, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, and you, Dave? Yeah, very good, thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for spending some time with me this evening. Now, young Philip was supposed to be with you. He was supposed to do a bit of a threesome tonight, but he's unwell. <laughs> yeah, he's not feeling too great. You know, you've, how can I say, one of those days when you just feel full of shit. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, quite, quite literally. Seven thirty <laughs> on a Friday night, and Philip is in bed. So, welcome to the Funsale Party House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's running solo. Um, mm. So, for those who don't know who you are, um, clearly they haven't been paying enough attention to South African wine if they don't know who you are. Maybe just give us a brief introduction about a brief bio about you and your life in wine up until this point. Well, I got into wine because of my bicycle. I wanted to cycle the Argus cycle tour and I asked Philip if he'd do it with me and he said he'd only do it with me if I attended one of the Cape Wine Academy wine courses with him and so we cycled the Argus cycle tour. I've now done 21. We went off to the Cape Wine Academy preliminary course and we did really well. They always give you 98 out of 100% of that so that you go on the next course and then the next course and before I knew it I was 
studying in wine um, and really enjoying it. And Philip and I decided to make a lifestyle change and a career change. We were both journalists, public relations writers and content creators up in Johannesburg. And Philip said to me one weekend, do you think we can run our jobs from the Cape? And I said, of course, I think we can. This was just when the internet started. And he said, well, let's move to the Cape. And I said, go for it. He put the house on the market. It was sold 10 days later and we had to move out in a month's time. And so we moved to the Cape to be closer this? to the vineyards. Mm, 1995, the year that South Africa won the Rugby World Cup. We moved down, carried on with our normal businesses, but tried to start getting into the wine industry, mostly writing. And Philip was invited by Wine Magazine on their behalf to attend a lunch. He sat next to Erica Platter, and the next day he got a phone call from um, Andrew McDowell, who said he was buying the Platter Wine Guide from... Um, John and Erica, and he's looking for an editor, and would Philip like to be the editor? And so that's how, and then I kind of segued into the wine industry behind Philip. Um, I continued with my studies and took on the Master of Wine because of an argument between Tim James, Cape Wine Master, and Richard Kelly, Master of Wine. I can't believe for a second that uh, Richard Kelly and Tim James had a disagreement. No, never, ever, <laughs> ever, 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 ever. But, um, in fact, David, they were, the, they were that tasting group that you and I belonged to on a Sunday. It was yes. at one of those tasting groups. Okay. At Angela Lloyd's house, and they were arguing outside, and I heard my name used in vain, and I went outside and said, why are you taking my name in vain? And they said, um, Richard said, well, I've just told Tim that I thought you could pass the Master of Wine. So I said, okay, let's show Tim. Tim said if I passed, he'd come to London for my graduation, and he did. Oh, nice. Mr. James, Mr. James does live up to his promises. Yeah, since um, getting my Master of Wine, which was then in 2005, I've become a member of the Platter Wine team. I was doing some moonlighting for it, for free, for love, beforehand, but I became officially a part of the team um, after I got my Master of Wine, and I'm now the Associate Editor of the Platter Wine Guide. I also have traveled to Japan with my friend Kenichi Ohashi, Master of Wine, to present wines for him on South Africa, mainly to WSET and sommelier groups that he has there. I've done some consulting to a Chinese man who imports wine into China. I'm currently busy with, believe it or not, an Indian man who lives in Philadelphia but is importing Argentinian wine into Malawi and I'm helping him with his <laughs> labeling and everything. Did you, does that, um, did, was, was that email um, identified as spam in your inbox, the first one that came through? <laughs> no, it wasn't, but it's very, I never know where Raj is in the world, whether he's going to be in Malawi, India or Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Um, or Stellenbosch. Sometimes I just get a phone call from him. Hello, Kathy, I'm in Stellenbosch. Same with my Chinese contact. Hello, Kathy, I'm in Cape Town. Come for supper tonight. Now I buy you being good. So off I, I toddle. And that's, and then judging, of course. I've judged um, in Australia. I've judged in China. I've judged in London. And London is actually my biggest wine gig now in terms of judging um, for the um, International Wine Challenge. And so that's really it. Um, okay. And do, you do, do. and do you still do some PR as well? Very little. It's mm. decreased over the years. As little um, as possible? Is that the sort of situation? Or? 
as little as possible. And I must just point out that I don't do public relations in the wine industry whatsoever. I would find it would be a conflict of interest with the judging that I do for Platter. So my PR clients are nice contrast advertising agency, mm-hmm. bottled water association. Yes. And then something that you may or may not ever have heard of called active software escrow, mm. which is more technical because in my previous life, I was a computer journalist. Yeah, so right. I know how to, I know how to talk tech lingo. And um, similarly, David, when I'm doing these projects for these um, external consultancies into um, China and um, Malawi and wherever, I get paid by the guys overseas. I don't get paid by the, by the local people. I was just going to sort of acknowledge that, that you are for a long time, or I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the only South African master of wine based in South Africa. Is that correct? Correct. I was for a very long time until Richard Kershaw came along. Yes. Okay. But you're the, probably one of the only master of wines I would have thought. And again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, who doesn't make their living from the industry in which they reside. Aside from what I get from the Platter Wine Guide, you're 100% correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a very Um, unique position, I would have thought. Yeah. I sometimes think that I've taken the wrong decision, but I really do believe that if I'm going to be tasting cited for the Platter Wine Guide, I have to be able to do that with a completely honest and open heart, knowing that I'm not getting reimbursed by anybody. Apart from Platter, yeah. Apart from Platter. Yeah. Yeah. So no one on the production side. I must admit that today, wine work counts for probably 70% of what I earn. Okay. Whereas my lovely PR clients, and I've had them now for, oh gosh, believe it or not, I've been doing PR for this ad agency since 1996. It's a long, long time. So they're long-standing clients and yeah, they contribute about 30% of my income. And what year was it you first did that Argus? Was it sort of early 90s? It was early 90s. It was, just trying to think, I think it would have been, it would have been 92 or 93. It was before Luke was born. Yes. And then my doctor and Philip, please begged me not to cycle the Argus pregnant with Luke. It would have been a bridge too far. I would have been, Luke came two weeks after the Argus. So it would have just been absolutely yeah. nonsensical to have done it. But I did swim the mid mile that year. Um, eight months pregnant, and I swam the mid I was very buoyant. Yeah, about to say, buoyant. yeah, yeah, not, 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 <laughs> not that um, sleek or um, no, no, wa- unfortunately not. What's what's the water version of aerodynamic? Um, water dynamic? I don't know. Hydrodynamic. Water dynamic. Hydrodynamic. Dolphin maybe? dynamic. Yeah, dynamic. Yeah. yeah, one of those kind of creatures. Yeah. Um, talk to me about studying for the MW while being in South Africa. I mean, South Africa isn't awash with the world of wine. There are some couple of really good importers who bring some some of the classics in, uh, but not certainly not all of the classics. So how, how did you go about um, sourcing wines and, and getting mentorship and all of those sort of things that's required for the MW? The first thing was that I have to say thank you to the long-standing members of that Sunday wine group to which we both belong Mm. because they were one of my sources of international wine and at that stage Louise um, Hoffmeyer was still a member and Tim and Angela and a couple of other people um, really dug into their cellars when we had tastings to bring good Bordeaux's and Burgundy's 
that they'd had in their cellars for a while in some Italian wines and Spanish wines. But it was exceptionally difficult because at that stage, I think Richard Kelly had been out here. He'd convinced Vinnie to do some importing, but there weren't at that stage that many people who were importing a large selection of wines. So what I did was I took a lot of money. Richard gave me good discount and I bought one each of all of his the wines he was bringing from Vinnie Mark. So okay. that was point number one. Point number two was that I had the Sunday Tasting Club. I then also went to as many of Wine Cellar's international tastings, Caroline's international tastings as I could. And there was another gentleman. I don't think you ever met Cornell. No. Um, and um, he was a Burgundy fanatic. And um, I joined one of his tasting groups. I tasted with him. So I tried to taste foreign wine during the lead up to my, to my exams at least um, twice or three times a week, either by going to a Caroline tasting and by opening a wine that I would have bought from Richard or by going to the Sunday tasting group and opening wines. But what I also did um, is I did go to the London Wine Trade Fair and develop myself a program and for example there I went to taste um, Austrian wine because at that stage Richard was only the only person bringing in any wine from Austria and what he was bringing in was Brundlmeier Grunefeld Lenner that mm. was it I would go to the wine tastings overseas and taste as broadly as I could with an agenda every single day sweet wines Madeiras oh the other one that I did go and taste as well I remember going to the Australia day in London and tasting my way through clear valley Rieslings because mm -hmm. that you just don't see here and finally for six months seven months before my actual tasting exam I decided not to drink any South African wine because you do get a little bit of a country palate or a cellar yeah. palate and so I was determined to get away from that. And so I, I just then went hell, not hell for leather. I think my consumption went down dramatically, but I drank only foreign wines. Obviously, back in the early 2000s, the, the exchange rate would have been much more friendly than it is now, I would have thought. There was one year, David, when I think I was on second year, so that would have been... 2002, when the exchange rate was 19 rand to the pound, and I okay. had to pay my fees yeah. that week. But that was as high as it went. So it was quite quite tough in that respect. Oh, and I'm, I'm also, believe it or not, everybody keeps quoting me on this, I'm also on record as having been said that I'm the only person who hasn't drunk a surfeit of Grand Cru Burgundy before going in to test for the Master of Wine. Oh, right. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, there was, there was lots of, there was, there was lots of um, premier crews that came out, but people not all that often would open their Grand Crews. Well, they um, do now, though. With the MW on the end of your name, they just, they just it's, a, it's a steady stream now, isn't it? Just, oh, I wish. The summer <laughs> bulging at the seams. You know, as soon it's amazing. You know, as soon as you pass this MW, you suddenly land up with a million rand extra in your bank account every year, so that you can go and invest in Grand Cru Burgundy and wonderful Barolos. You know, it's yeah. um, nah, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. The only people I think who get gifted those kind of things all get flown business class when I mean, they get invited to Japan and China to open banquets. And when people they they live in London and they have a 
slightly different life to what we do. People who tend to um, move product, as they say, tend to uh, yes. get the... Uh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. they do. Yes, yeah. they do. Yeah. But it was uh, a fun so journey. I learned a great deal. I've also, lost, I've also forgotten a great deal. I took all my notes using the pen because I'm a firm believer. Well, I'm from that generation. I grew up learning by writing. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe that when I sat down in the exam and I wrote my essays, all the knowledge that had gone up the pen, up my arm, into my brain, went down the <laughs> yeah, yeah, brain, yeah, down yeah, the arm yeah. and onto the paper. And and, uh, and, and, because and, and, I cannot yeah. even remember many of the questions that we were asked in the exam. Never to be seen again, that information. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm the same. I mean, if you don't use it, you lose it. I mean, exactly. I uh, used sake quite a lot in my life uh, when I was a sommelier, um, and Jeanette did as well. So we used to talk sake, drink sake quite a lot. And now, because I haven't really interacted with it a meaningful level for a long time, I've just lost all of the information, the producers, uh, the different prefectures, all of the different terms. I, mean, I, I know the major ones, but, like, yeah, I would, I would struggle. So, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, especially living in South Africa uh, over the last 20 years, if it's not from classic uh, area in France or, you know, from a classic producer in Italy, you're not going to see the wines necessarily, no, you know? So you're I mean, not. And, you know, David, that thing about if you don't use it, you lose it is so very true, which is why I have probably been one of the most aggressive in a nice way, I hope, masters of wine when it comes to volunteering to attend seminars, volunteering to be a mentor, because it, it keeps me current. So I've been very fortunate. I'm, I passed in 2005. 2007, I um, went to the Bordeaux seminar as a Master of Wine for the first time. And from 2008, I organized it for seven years, I think. Yeah, right. Plus, at the same, plus at the same time, I... I went to a couple of the, I went to one of the seminars in Adelaide, San Francisco, Rist, Odney. So for the last, yeah, since 2007, I've been very fortunate. I've been to at least one and sometimes two of the seminars that the education program puts together for the students. Yeah. And it does, it keeps me, it keeps me up to date. It means I'm forced to revise at least once a year because I've got to look, and, and it literally does. I mean, every time one of those, do you get those emails from um, the Austrian Wine Marketing Bureau? Yeah. Gosh, they're aggressive marketers. But it, it, when they come into my inbox, I read them because how else am I going to keep up to date with changes in Austrian legislation? Yeah. Not that no. I really think they need it in terms of sparkling wine, but that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> What I wanted to talk to you about, and certainly not just this, but certainly something I want to cover, so I might as well bring it up now, is the sort of the transition that South African wine has taken over the last 20 years from that sort of, as you say, when South Africa sort of rebooted in sort of 94, 95, and then opened up to the world again with a lot of goodwill, but not a lot of great wine, it seems. So there's some dark periods well, dark years in the, in the sort of the mid to late 90s in terms of what was coming out of the country. There was highlights, obviously. You know, we, I had Mark Kent on the, on the podcast a couple of days ago. Um, so the 97 Book and Hoodscliff Syrah was, you know, obviously a, a landmark wine. But when did you think, I'm assuming that you agree it's a very different place now than it was in, 20, in 2000? Oh, absolutely. Gosh, it's so vastly different, which 
yeah, I have to say that sometimes I wish I lived in London to be close to all those wonderful tastings and all the wonderful wines and opportunities there. But there's nothing like living in South Africa to be exposed to an exciting, dynamic industry and one that almost challenges you every day and puts you on a new learning curve. It's really, it's invigorating. You, can, you know, going to taste Bordeaux and Burgundy every day must get tiring at some stage. Yeah. The 1990s, Mark's 1997 Syrah, I think I might still have a bottle in the cellar because that was my son's birth year. That was truly a stupendous, um, a stupendous um, wine. There was also some wines coming out of Clan Constantia, the, the Sauvignon Blancs that had unexpected dashes of Semillon in them. They were also really wonderful. But, um, you know, in the 93s, 97s, our guys were still getting to grips with how to use oak, how to handle acidities. And yes, there was still a large amount of red tape bureaucracy, uh, um, and telling people what they can and cannot do. So one of the marked differences for me, I think, was listening to Richard Kelly when I was judging for one of the first times on um, the old Mutual Trophy Challenge. And Richard had judged in the very first ones, and then he'd gone away, and then he was invited back as an international judge. And he pointed out to me that, you know, you're faced with a lineup of wines that you're going to taste, 120 wines. And he said, you could quite easily easily the first few years of the trophy wine show when you were judging just pick up ones and nose them and know that you didn't need to take that wine any further because it was of the way it was made it was you could pick up already there was too much oak or you could pick up slight oxidation second bottle please but or Britannomyces or whatever he said you could comfortably push back almost a quarter of those wines knowing that you didn't really have to look at them again. When I then joined him, I think it would have been then in 2005 or 2004, it was just before I got my Master of Wine that Michael invited me to judge. You know, you were sitting there and you were looking at 120 wines and you knew you were going to have to work hard. It was going to be across the whole spectrum because the um, the winemaking had improved so much in that yeah. period. And I really enjoy tasting for platter i must taste sometimes 700 to 800 of the wines that go into the, the platter wine guide and i taste very broadly i'm very lucky then that i do get some really top producers but i also do taste um you know the the, the wines that are being bagged in box and slightly higher residual sugars but they're still labeled as dry reds and i can it's a wonderful tasting to do because it exposes you to so much that's out there and i can honestly say that you can recommend to anybody a wine in south africa and they won't get necessarily a bad wine they're going to get a good wine offering good value compared say to the greater regions of um, bordeaux blanc or uh, bordeaux rosé um, where it can still be touch and go in south africa you're still going to get a good drink yeah out of what you buy like a sound wine a sound wine. A sound wine might yeah. not be exciting, might yeah. not have soul, but you're going to get something that is sound. Yeah. yeah. You're not going yeah. to say, I'll have a beer, please. Or that's a waste of money. Was there a point or was it sort of, it, was it in retrospect that you realised that the, the industry was changing or it had changed or what was the, was there a series of events that looking back or not? Because it has changed so rapidly. I, I can't imagine that there wasn't a, 
some point a, an origin to it, or a, at least a, a group of people who are you know, responsible for it? That's not an easy question. Only, only, only the toughest to questions say, on this podcast, Cathy. Oh, grand, grand for yeah. that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think there were people who were trailblazers in their time and that they were bucking the system, but they didn't necessarily contribute to that huge spike, but they might have started a bit of a groundswell, and that's the, the guys that came back and started the Stellenbosch wine route, for example, because they had to really go against the legislation that the KWB had forced through to, to, be in, to be able to sell wine to consumers and open their doors to consumers. Yeah, just explain that for a second, because I'm not familiar with that story. Okay, so when, at that time, the only people that were allowed to sell wine to consumers were the people like the KWV, the Stellenbosch Farmers Winery. They were called, for example, quote-unquote, the producing wholesalers. So you wouldn't have, so even though um, Simon Such at that stage was probably, was making wine for their own consumption, they were, they had to sell either the wine they were making or the grapes to one of the producing wholesalers, the DGBs, Stonebosch Farmers Wineries, KWVs, or the cooperatives. And so when they were allowed to open their wine route or open their cellars, um, they were only allowed to be open. I think the first restrictions were just on a Saturday morning that you could go and buy. And you, as a consumer, you had to buy a case and that case had to be sealed. So you couldn't just walk out there and think, okay, I want one bottle of tiara. Thank you very much. So you had to go and take the, hot, the entire case. So there were those kind of restrictions placed on the wine route and they had to keep butting their heads to get legislation changed to allow them to to trade more profitably. And, I mean, look, they needed it because at that stage, South African production was increasing and obviously they wanted to be able to take a, a bigger slice of the pie. If you've and when, when, when was this? What, what sort of time were we... What sort of years um, are we well, talking about? Well, they started here? this, I think, if memory serves me correctly, and I do speak under correction, mm-hmm. if I had my word, I could open it up. But I think that they only came back and started the Stellenbosch wine route in the um, late 70s, early 80s. And that was very small, but I'll have to double check that. And then most of the legislation changes went through. And who were we talking about? Obviously, um uh, I'm assuming um, it was Jan Milan's fa- father, was Johan it? Jan Milan, yes. Franz um, Milan, okay. Milan. From Semester. Um, and, uh, yes, and Spatz, um, St- Spatz from Delheim. Who else? He was another third. I'll, I'll have to come back to you on that one. I can't recall right now. Yeah, the mind's gone to mush. So that, was, that was important, but I think the other person who had a quite an unsung impact on wine improvements, I think Neil Ellis is mm. one of the very quietly spoken, accomplished winemaker who influenced a lot of young winemakers and did a lot to contribute to raising the bar for South African wines. And then Charles Back with Spice Root and Fairview. I think he really showed, you know, the brand managers at some of the larger places how branding should really be done and how tiered marketing could be done. And then, of course, how to really make a wine cellar experience come alive for people who come to to taste at your wine cellar. Yeah. So I think I think he really Charles really had a, a great impact. 
and to influence so many people who've then take, raised the bar much further. You talk about Mark Kent. I know he is, he, Charles Beck is one of his heroes. Mm. Um, Yerban Saadi, they served some apprentices with him and learned a lot from him as well. Neil Ellis, maybe talk, talk me through, I mean, he, from what I understand, he was the, sort of the first guy to make varietally specific wines from different regions and, mm. and buying fruit and actually say where the fruit was coming from and, and, and do more of a negotiate business, which obviously so many young producers in South Africa do now. Yeah, it was very revolutionary at that time. Um, yeah. And uh, as you've probably known, having spent a long time in South Africa yourself, South Africans don't really like change. I don't think anybody does. Humans are not programmed to, to accept change easily. So, mm. yes, so Neil did, did that. And I think um, his Philippus, um Sauvignon Blanc, for example, was one of the ones that was um, really stand out. He did it with red wines. And as you say, buying in fruit, cross-regionally blending, all those kind of wonderful things. He oh. really opened your eyes and, and got us away from the, um, moved us away from the paradigm of that you could only make wine if you owned the vineyards, if you owned the cellar, yeah. and if your family had been making wine for a long time. So it did, it opened the doors to a lot of young people and yep. it opened the doors to the boutique winemakers. And yeah, before I forget, let's take um, our hats off to the young boutique winemakers. Um, you know, the as in Australia um, and as, as in most parts of the world, um, the small producers or the let's call it, say, the 10 largest producers, or in some instances, even the five largest producers, often account for almost 75, sometimes 80% of the share of wine that's made in any given country. And the same is true in South Africa. However, the exciting labels come from producers that often crush less than 1,000 tonnes, um, and some of them even less than 500 tonnes, and others far less than that. And... They're the people who drive the interest in the industry and um, push the boundaries, create the buzz. It doesn't mean that we cannot give credit where it's due because a lot of the producers in Stellenbosch, stalwart producers in Paul and other established regions, they're still doing great things. They make improvements every day. But, you know, sometimes when you're good, it's harder to improve because you're you know, as you improve, it gets harder and harder to improve because yeah. you improve only incrementally. Yeah, your starting point is higher. In, in, your starting point is higher. So, yeah, I think the boutique wineries, those guys really need those young winemakers who were prepared to go and work abroad. You know, um, Neil Ellis sent a lot of people, a number of people, not a lot, a number of people from his generation um, went and studied at Geisenheim. But overseas travel and working vintages um, in other countries wasn't really, really done. And now it's hard to find even a cellar rat who hasn't worked at, in at least three different northern hemisphere countries and two other southern hemisphere countries, which yeah. is good, which is good. Yeah. I went, Philip and I went to the Port Festival in 1992, 1991, and I spoke to a young wine. I'm assuming this is, I'm, I'm assuming this is Plain Kura, South African Port, Port, Port Festival, Port, sort of yes, in yes. Karlstorp, is it, or? Correct, Karlstorp, yes. Karlstorp, okay. Yeah. And um, 
I spoke to a young winemaker who'd just taken over um, making wines from his dad, and I was now studying for certificate or diploma at Cape Wine Academy. So I thought I needed to ask important questions. So I said to him, I do like this port that you're serving here. Can you tell me how does this compare in style to a port from the Douro? And he looked at me and completely straight-faced said, I've never tasted a port from the Douro, so I can't answer that question for you. Mm. And I thought, that's really, that's really, that, that was sad. That was incredibly sad. Well, at least he was honest. I mean, well, he a, a, a lot of people would just, <laughs> a, a, a lot of people, I think, still would, would just sort of make something up and dismiss it and talk in, in very non-specific terms and try and get away from the question. Yes, you I know, think they would. Credit where credit's due. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, he's still making quite nice wines and got a lovely dog. But anyway, um, but it's, it's um, yeah, you talk about people blustering their way through things. Um, I was at um, Van Italy one year and I'd gone through really early, um, which is rather stupid because the Italians don't do early. But I wanted to taste as many Chiantis as possible. Um, and I had an appointment with a consortia and they were consortia, they were going to pour upwards of 100 Chiantis for me later that afternoon, but I wanted to taste even more. And I went to a, one of the booths that was open. The winemaker wasn't there, but they had the lady behind the counter pouring and they poured me a wine. And before I tasted it, they said, do you mind if we take your name and business card if you've got it so that we can do future marketing? And so I handed over my, very proudly, my Kathy Consell Master of Wine card. And then I smelt the wine and it was corked. And I didn't know, I stood there thinking, do I tell them that it's corked and risk offending them? Or do I not tell them? And then the winemaker arrives on the stand and checks the wines and he says, but this one's caught, corked. And they say, no, but a master of wine was here and she didn't say anything. So I thought, yeah, you have to, honesty is the best policy. So I said to them, could you open another bottle, please? This wine is corked. And she turned around to me and she said, the winemaker tasted it yesterday because it's been open since yesterday afternoon and he said it was fine. But I'll open another bottle for you. And then lo and behold, as I'm tasting through, the winemaker skulks onto the stand and I think, oh no, I know what's coming. And she goes, takes him to the back and gabbles away in Italian. Yeah. And he's looking at me going, pfft, <laughs> 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 Yeah, to open your mouth or not to open your mouth, that is the question. I think honesty is the best policy, but so is humility. I yes, think, yes. I could be wrong, you know, but I think there might be something, you know, I think the cork may have affected. I could be wrong. I don't know the wine very well, but I'd really appreciate you if... <laughs> It's fucking horrendously corked. Please open another bottle. <laughs> In fact, I did, I did that at uh, Kanu when Richard Kirscher was making the wine there. I went to 
drop off some wine for Richard. And then I said, oh, I'll taste through the wines. And one of them, the guy poured one and he said, it's, I said, listen, it's corked. And he said, no, I don't think so. I'm, it's fine. I'm a Cape Wine Academy student. I would have picked up if it was corked. So I said, no, actually, just get me the bot- another bottle, please. Next minute, Richard came through and, oh, hello, Kathy. No, no, no. And then the guy behind the counter realized who I was and hmm. just quickly disappeared. Yeah, right. Okay. I didn't split on him to Richard, and Richard wouldn't remember anyway, so it's fine. Mm, no, I could. Good, good. We're talking about sort of the transition from 90 South Africa to 2000 South Africa and to... Oh, that's a long way away. Uh, I came, and I've told this story before on the podcast, I came to Cape Wine in, I think it was 2007, and I was completely underwhelmed. Um, then I came back again for Cape Wine in 2012 and, and the world had opened up. It was a completely different experience. What happened in those five years? What was, what, what, obviously there were, there were seeds of things happening um, before that in the sort of, in the early 2000s. I mean, Tom Lover was making wine at Observatory. Even Sadi who started making wine at, uh, at Spice Root, obviously for himself as well. What, what, what changed? I mean, when did, when did the grand old names of, of the nineties and sort of fall back or did the others not fall? Did they not fall back? The others just came past them. I don't think the grand old names fell back. I think the others came past them. And I think it was an injection of that whole young gun movement to borrow um, Roland's phrase, because those young guns are no longer young guns, but they were in, they were in those days. I do seem to remember at that stage, there were a lot of um, up and coming winemakers like Artie Bardenhorst making wine in Constantia before he moved off to Rustenburg and then to the Swatland. And so those guys were making waves and they were challenging conventions as well. I think also uh, 2000, um, how was the RAND doing in that, in that stage? I do know that at some stage the RAND was not so strong and so we weren't also able to afford all that new oak anymore. It wasn't that, it wasn't that weak. It wasn't, it wasn't as weak as it is now, for sure. No, it wasn't as weak as it was now. You know, all of a sudden the wineries couldn't afford a lot of, a lot of new oak, so people weren't throwing new oak at, at things. I think there had been that generation in the 19, late 1990s, early 2000s, who were quietly making wine with their dad or with somebody else, and then they started coming to the fore once they realised what could be done. And I also think there was um, suddenly the world focus. I mean, we did have it in 1994, but there I think we had to play a lot more catch up. And it was really, we increased our share of international markets probably just on the basis of goodwill from 1994. Yeah, um, many, many people have said the same really thing. It wasn't really on the basis of quality. It wasn't really on the basis of quality. But um, you also had people like Ken Forrester and Martin Maynard who in 2000 challenged the concept of Shannon, that it could be a really good variety in South Africa if treated in a different way. Yeah, and you... And you and not, not treated in a different way if not abused. If treat, treat, treated with respect. Treated with respect, so um, then you and have so that and that's really the I mean the FMC I think is the is the wine you're probably referring to. Correct. Or, yeah. Yes. So yeah. was that yeah. really the um, the genesis origin point for modern uh, I think that in, was in a philosophical cool. change, not necessarily in a stylistic change, but in terms Correct. of Correct. Yes, yeah. in a philosophical change, because um, as you say, the philosophy has evolved from that though as well. 
Mm. Um, so, you know, well, the philosophy hasn't changed. I think the style has changed. I mean, the their philo- style has changed. Their philosophy yeah. is still, you know, Shannon is a is a noble variety capable of uh, of making wines of very high quality. Um, but how that is interpreted by each person is the is the stylistic is difference. The philosophy. Is the yeah. stylistic difference. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. No, you're correct. And I mean, even FMC's moved on from, from where it was in the 2000s. And what yeah. was that wine like early in the early 2000s? What, I mean, obviously it had an impact. Oh, it, was, it had great impact. Yeah, it, it was a little bit sweet, but there again, South okay. African palates, we're used, to, we're used to sweet fruit. I think at that stage it... Um, when you mean sweet fruit, do you mean residual sugar? No, I mean no. sweet fruit. I mean okay. fully ripened fruit. Fully uh, okay, ripened okay. Fruit. right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and a certain sucrosity, sorry, which you do get from other, um, in, in other countries, but it's that good old sunshine and you can taste the sunshine in a bottle because the, the actual mm-hmm. fruit character is a fully ripened fruit. So it's like the South African version of Australian Chardonnay from the late Correct. 80s, early 90s. Correct. Okay. Exactly. So a bit of new oak, maybe some American oak perhaps, oak. or? No, not many went for American oak when it came to Shannon. No. Okay. The most of uh, the varieties that saw most of the American oak would have been Shiraz and yep. Pinotage. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask. Pinotage. I'm gonna ask about Pinotage uh, no, eventually. So, okay. so, 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 get, get, get your, uh, get your Rolodex working. <laughs> Was that a momentous occasion? Did you think? Well, what is this new Shannon Blanc? Is this? Is this? Was it just a wine at that point, or did you did you did you feel that there was going to be a a seismic shift in the in the wine world in the South African wine world? Because um, obviously um, they thought that there was potential for something new, so there was dynamicism. I can never say that word properly. Um, dynamism. Dynamism. Thank you very much in the market, in the, in the producers, in terms of they had the, uh, the inclination to do it. So there must have been some space. They weren't so married or um, restricted in what they could do. Or am I... No, they, I mean, compa- comparatively speaking, South Africa, relatively speaking, South Africa has relatively few rules um, in terms of what we can do. And... I think that that Shannon was a revelation because um, in a way that Palladius was probably um, and, and Columella were, were revelations as well, but that, that Shannon was a re- revelation because it did treat Shannon seriously. I mean, whoever would have thought that you would have given new oak, new French oak to Shannon. Uh-huh. Um, many winemakers knee jerk reaction would have been, no, that's a waste of good oak. So it challenged those kind of perceptions. And look, Ken's a personable guy and he drags people along with him. But at that stage, he was, I think he still is. But even then, he was very influential within the South African context, particularly in Stellenbosch. And he really fought the fort for Stellenbosch being Shannon country as well. And, um, you know, people were looking for something new. As it's so often with these kind of things, it's almost like the perfect storm that you've got a better understanding of oak, of winemakers having a better understanding of wine techniques. You've got better seller practices um, and you've got um, 
somebody trying something new, forcing you to do new thinking. You've got the outside world looking in and saying, come on, South Africa, what can you deliver? And then everything somehow comes together beautifully. Yeah. And also, um, I think, you cannot probably at that stage overlook the work that was being done in the vineyards. Yeah, because I was going to mention that. I think that's that's my answer to my question. But I, is, there was I, a it, great deal of it, work is, in is, the vineyards. Is the transition from cellar work to vineyard work? Uh, Correct. In terms of investment and thinking and and planning. Correct. There was that that whole. There was a lot of work being done in the vineyards, probably sparked by people who really realized how much of a risk virus was to the South African industry. But then other people with other interests like Ken and his old vines, um, and which came along with um, Rosa formalizing that kind of approach. Um, so there was that shift to the, there was a really, a, a real shift from wines are made in the winery to wines being made in the, in the, in the vineyard kind of approach. There was investment in your vineyards. And so that also contributed a lot. There was a lot of replanting, mainly of red varieties. How up to speed and are you with the with the whole virus situation in South Africa and it's historical or are you? Uh, no, I, I can't give you, sorry, I haven't looked that up for a while. No, that's the virus situation. Yeah. No, I do know that Andre van Rensburg still stamps around Fakalef and looking for red vines with red leaves and taking them out yeah. personally. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, that kind of thing. I do know, for example, that um, our virus experts are consulting in Israel, not only to the broader Israeli um, industry, but one of the um, wineries up in Golan Heights has got its own nursery where they're growing virus-free material. And that's been driven by several of the experts from South Africa who are consulting from them. I also know for the fact that Israel is looking very closely at Chenin Blanc and they want to copy yeah. us. Is, do you know any traveler that travels between um, South Africa and Israel quite often that may have been the, uh, the vector for that virus, um, Kathy? <laughs> no. some, con some consulting MW, perhaps? <laughs> Definitely not. You know, um, <laughs> they made me unpack my suitcase before I went into, into Israel. And before I went into Australia, they always used to make me wash my boots. Yes. So. They make me do that until they see my passport and then they wave me through. It's fine. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> virus, virus doesn't stick to Australians. No, no exactly right. If you've, got the, uh, if you've got the kangaroo and the emu on your... Uh, on your passport, you're, you're okay. okay. I promised to ask you about Pinotage, and, and here it is. It seems like it's had a bit of a rebirth over the last... I mean, I've, I've obviously got a wine um, made from Pinotage, so perhaps a slight bit of bias on my behalf. But, I mean, there's a reason why we made it out of Pinotage. We could have made a wine out of any variety we wanted to, but we chose Pinotage. It seems to us at why least... Why did that, you choose Pinotage? Oh, because I, I think it's been abused uh, in South Africa. I think... I saw something in the lamb pinotage that um, that Craig and Jürgen made when they were at Lammershoek that I had not seen in pinotage before. This sort of mm. almost dolcetto-esque sort of cut and and bite and bursty fruit and a little bit of sour cherry to it, which makes it entirely enchanting and very Moorish and very gastronomically relevant. And it was at the total opposite end of the spectrum of any that I'd had, you know, at a, at a Wesset in the mid in the mid two thousands when we were doing WSET in London, the pinotages we were having then were heavy and thick and rubbery and 
that old rusty nail, burnt rubber, uh, like horrendous, horrendous wines. Absolutely. No pleasure whatsoever. And most Um, of them were bottled by Corby bottlers because they were shipped out in bulk. Oh, really? Okay. It's a dreadful time. Maybe, yeah, maybe talk about rubber and pinotage and is there something called chocolate pinotage, a style that thankfully we're not (gasps) seeing much anymore, but that was a thing for a long time, wasn't it? Sort of early 2000s to mid 2010s, a sort of like a 10 year reign, I suppose. Would that be right? Yes, that was, and that was Bautas Vareen okay. who made the first one, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Pinotage, oh gosh. You must get the question a lot because you're the, you are the South African MW and. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the students at the seminars all come up to me and say, please, can you tell me how to recognize coffee Pinotage? It is such a, important wine, wine style from South Africa. And then I do my best to convince them, no, it is not. Well, someone's telling it's, them that. They're not, they're, not, they're, not, they're not making that up. I mean, it must be in some syllabus somewhere as, a, as a, an important style uh, that, that academic students of wine need to recognise and acknowledge. And Sometimes I think it's um, the wines that they can get in their own countries that um, for the WSET courses. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's not a... And mind you, I did a pinotage tasting in Japan and Yummy had managed to get together something like 37 pinotages. So that was quite impressive for a, a small island to have that many pinotages in the market. And there were two coffee pinotages. So there is um, a few, there is a fair bit of people in that small island, isn't there, with a bit of money? Yeah, so. a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, and, and they drink, they, and they're at the moment very much um, in favour of South Africa. South Africa is the flavour of the month as well as Greece and Georgia. So we, yeah, mustn't, right. we mustn't let come off the boil on that. Yeah. But, yeah, Panatage. Um, do you drink it personally? Not, yes, I do. But I drink more <laughs> the um, Lum style of Panatage than the old-fashioned style of yeah. Panatage. The David and Nadia, their Panatage from, the, I think, the Contours. It's the Contours collection. Then, um, I think I've renamed that collection a few times. I think it's the Seabritz yeah, collection now, or the Paderberg, or the yeah. Topography range. They've had a few different... Topography, um, topography, yeah, but they've had a few names to it. Excellent yeah. wine. It's a really it's a really lovely wine, and, and I'm also on record as telling a group of Japanese that came to the country that this is what Pinotage should taste like. It's really beautiful. So that's the style of Pinotage that I really like. Um, and it would be nice if more of those pinotages did get shown around the world because, yes, every time I travel, people do always want to talk about pinotage. Yeah. And, it is, and it is, it's pinotage and Shannon. And it's South, yeah. Africa's foot, South Africa's foot in the door. Yeah. I mean, that's marketing 101. You've got to offer some, somebody something different. And, yes, pinotage is, is something different. We've almost got a monopoly on pinotage, haven't we? Oh, yay. Um, I haven't tasted one from you. I think 11% of the Pinotage plantings are in New Zealand. I haven't tasted one from New Zealand for a long time now. I had one from the Yarra Valley when I was in Melbourne last. Oh, my gosh. And? It was okay. Yeah. It was, it was okay. Decent. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was, was all it super young rice. Was it Dolcetto-like? Was it no, it, was just, it just tasted like a carbonically macerated red wine um, from oh, young okay. rice. So it was pretty... Pretty variety, about to say amphibious, but um, <laughs> ambiguous. <laughs> David, that actually reminds me the the one 
just to go back to that um, change in South Africa where we listed the investment in the vineyards, et cetera, et cetera. The other change I do think that's taken place in that for good in the cellar is that there's not that much emphasis on tougher extractions. Um, oh, yes, okay. And, macer and macerations. And I also do know that I've um, spoken to people, winemakers have shown me their wine and said, what do you think of this? And I say, oh, yes, it looks lovely. And they said, I'm a little bit upset with the color. I would have liked it to be darker. And you can't see through the wine as it is. Why yes, okay. It to be darker or more heavily extracted with greater tannins, etc. So mm. I think there has been a move away from, from that. There is that trend towards the lighter extraction, the lighter alcohol wines, most definitely. But it goes beyond that. I think that even our traditional old style wines have undergone a little bit of a metamorphosis and that winemakers are making those with less extraction, less new wood and less focus on tannin. Would you think okay, that... So we can go back to penetrage. Would you think that rubber is a... Is that a, a, a characteristic married to pinotage or is it a characteristic married to virused vines in South Africa? Why can't you ask a wine scientist that question? No, because um, it's about because perception rather than... It's about perception. Um, I think in, in South Africa, I think it's married to pinotage, yes. Okay. In South Africa, I think it's married to Pinotage. But mm. you see, then that contradicts with my experience of some Chilean wines. I've had rubber on on Cabernet sometimes from Chile. I'm more in the uh, red wine, South African, uh, old school, uh, heavy yeah. extraction with some virus because obviously the virus has impeded ripeness. And so ripeness. They've, had to, they've had to extract it harder and that's where you've they've accessed those sort of those burnt rubber compounds, compounds. those compounds yeah, yeah. and uh, anyone listening to this will immediately realize that neither of us are uh, uh, a scientist uh, <laughs> we, did, uh, we didn't do a bsc uh, no uh, words words that are longer than two syllables i can't manage to get out um, yeah you know that, well i couldn't even get dynamism out before so no, exactly <laughs> exactly Minutage. so is it is it just a weird curio that South Africa is stuck with or is it a variety you think that has relevance in the world market or is that not your, where you, where your no, thinking lies? Um, no, I, th I, th I think that it has relevance on a number of levels. I think it has relevance from the guys who are trying to market South Africa and South African wine abroad simply because it can act as the door opener. As the so USP expect, type of art. As a USP, um, as a get your foot in the door kind of thing. It, it has relevance there because if you phone up a, a, somebody in Japan and you say you want to go and see him and he says, oh, yes, but I don't need Cabernet and, and um, I get enough Shiraz from Australia, you say, yes, but I can come and show you my Pinotage. And I say, fine, come and see me. And then you can sneak in some other wines maybe. Mm. So in that respect, it has relevance in terms of maybe a marketing tool. The bait and switch. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. Yes, bait and switch. And, you know, similarly with Shannon, but there's only that many Shannons that people can have on their list. Um, so, yeah. yes, Pinotage does have, it has relevance then as a marketing tool. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of sort of, quote unquote, indigenous varieties around the world that no one cares about. 
like I'm thinking, not no one cares about, but um, I mean, there's obviously people who care about them. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about them. Like um, uh, Fraser from from Piedmont, right? It's, yes. It's this sort of you know sinewy, quite sort of aggressive. Um, Hard to right? understand. Yeah, but in in a similar way to Pinotage in terms of it's not immediately obviously enjoyable. It's, it hasn't got a lovely you know. Um, rush of fruit or anything like that but just because it's there and just because it's indigenous doesn't mean that people necessarily want to drink it um so that's sort of where i'm at with pinotage no i think i think it's got relevance in terms of a marketing tool i think it's got relevance when made in the the dolcetto style and i do think even the old style does have relevance within the south african market there's a hardcore of people who who want to buy that kind of wine and david as you know it and it's relatively easy to make the wine it's a much harder job to sell it there you go another thing we can add to how did south africa change we suddenly changed from being a production-led wine industry to being a market-led industry and we started deciding to maybe give people what they want to drink instead of yeah that is an absolutely really good point and one i hadn't really thought about yeah. before until you verbalized it just now that's uh and that transition has been a, a train wreck a hard absolutely. one, yeah. Uh, no, you absolutely. Um, I'm going to think about that more. I think, and maybe yeah, I can. It, for, it forced other people. It forced uh, complacent companies who'd had a lot of power beforehand to make serious changes. And so, the people who are best placed to put South Africa in the world market now, i.e., the guys making 75% of the in charge of 75% of the grape crush haven't got the skills or the tools or the access to market that they would require to actually have that impact Correct. as a direct. Yeah, and, that's, and that's a really good and point. Also, and also they keep changing their minds about what they're trying to do. Well, no, because as you say, they're market led. So yeah. it depends on what market study they do, then they, they, they change lanes. Yeah. But you've got to, you've got to make a wine that appeals to the consumer not mm-hmm. that it appeals to your father or your uncle, and then you can sell it. You can't take it and go and say, this is my wine, buy it whether you like it or not. Eh? Yeah. Um, yeah, just because you make it doesn't, doesn't mean that someone has to buy it or wants no, to buy it. No, yeah. exactly, exactly. No, thank you, Cathy, for that. That's, that's set my mind racing. That's excellent. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about the other points that I made in the in a presentation I gave in Japan last year that was that definitely was the investment in the in the vineyards and the move away from a production led to a market or consumer led industry the new winemakers that were traveling and exploring different cellar techniques etc yeah that was all of them yeah but that explains why one part of the market transitioned into what's happening now and it's super exciting and um, pointy in and you know and fine tuning every vintage to you know get better and better and better and better and then your your reasoning here explains why the vast majority of the market has actually just left been left behind and and hasn't moved. They don't know. They don't know even to change. David. And maybe maybe even gone backwards. Yeah. Yeah. And I see now they that really um, how to change. Uh, Distel is getting out of. High-end wine. I mean, did you selling Placier de Merle and a couple of others as well? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's a huge. I mean, that's that's huge it's news. A huge. It is huge news. 
It's really and huge news. And they're not exactly selling it at the top of the market either. No. Um, so this is this this reeks of panic panic selling, doesn't it? Well, it reeks of panic selling, and um, as a also. I'm so pleased I don't have a job at Distill because they change lanes so often and marketing directors so often. It just seems that every two years they've got a new strategy. As long as they keep making Tussenberg, I'm happy. Tussies, yeah, great one. I taste it for platter every year. It's so good, isn't it? It's ridiculously good. (laughs) Every to me in the big jug. Oh, I want to. I want to taste. I want to taste Tussie's first for platter. I get my free my free two liter um, flagon of Tussenberg. Uh, for those who don't know what Tussenberg is, maybe just explain what Tussenberg is. It's a South African icon wine, slightly oxidized in style, possibly influenced by the Retzinas of Greece, except they don't have the pine nutty character to it or the green nutty character to it. Well, and it's also low cost. and it's also red. Uh, and you get a white one now, and you get a rosé now. No, I'm, I'm not interested in the. I'm not interested in modern <laughs> Tussenberg. To be honest, <laughs> I don't want. You know, yeah, no, I, I don't want no, a horse. The... I don't want a horse with a turbo. I don't want Tussenberg rosé. Oh no! Wait, wait! I was getting confused there. You see, Tussenberg is different. Yeah, the the, the Tussenberg icon is red. Yes. And yes, entry entry level red wine. The one that I was thinking about was Umtas. That comes, ah, that's, no, that's, that's, that's um, yeah, outside the, of my knowledge. Sorry. That's, that's, oh, gosh, no, I will, I'll share with you when I get it this time. Okay. Um, and um, actually, there's quite an interesting story, if you'll bear with me. So on the Umtas label, which you've never seen, David, you'll have to Google it. On the Umtas label, it features an old Googling now. Cape vineyard worker with his hat on and then some grapes in the background and then there's a cloud or two. And the story goes, the legend goes, is that um, the poorer folk who would buy these, this umtas to consume, would <laughs> usually... Just, sorry, I've just, club, I've, just, I've just seen the label. <laughs> if, you're, would club to, if you're listening to the yeah. podcast, please please Google umtas, which is double O-M space T-A-S, uh, image search. It's, um, it's special. It means Uncle Tuss. Uncle Tuss. Uncle Worm means uh, David knows he could have translated that. Yeah, and it's um and it's natural white wine. Natural white wine. Label. Yeah. And and it's got this lovely label. And David, can you see on the right hand side there's a cloud, uh, and there's a position yeah. where the cloud um, touches the edge of the label. Now, if you and your friend have each clubbed together five rand to buy a bottle of um, Wormtas, yes, slightly more expensive these days, but in the good old days, 10 rand for a bottle, yes. um, you would share. And legend has it that half the bottle is exactly down to that cloud on the right hand oh, side. Oh, I see. Right. And so, so this is where, this is where Adi Badenhorst got his idea that's for where the... he gets his yeah, sector on he, the side of he his doesn't, and and on the on the family wines as well, he doesn't give his um, yeah. his uh, his influences out very easily. He sort of says, "Oh no, that's just you know, it came to me and yeah. you know, uh, totally." He told he told me that's where he got his. Yeah, of course, he's going to tell you that. Influence South African no, he MW. Tell me no, no, but he doesn't tell anybody else outside of uh, <laughs> outside of the uh, no, South Africans born. Art, uh, art is a grand born before one to 1980. Ask him a question. Oh yeah. gosh, no, absolutely. 
No, yeah, but did he's... you know that he's... I'm going you know to challenge him about that. Winemakers there. Sorry? You're going to challenge him on that. Yeah. Yeah. Cagey, yeah. Cagey's yeah. still there. Yeah, Cagey, yeah. Mm. yeah. Locked in... Can you imagine in lockdown at the Bardenhorst? <laughs> There's worse places he to be locked be down. He having a ball. He, he must he, be having an absolute ball. <laughs> well, he could be... Uh, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of other places um, that would be worse than the Barden or something. Absolutely, I think that'd be a, a, a quite a nice place to be locked down, to be honest. Yeah, and he and he and he had a few shopping excursions to um, the metropolises of um, Malmesbury and other places, and he's mm. enjoying himself. Yeah. I struggle in Malmesbury to get uh, understood, so I can only imagine how uh, how he goes. <laughs> Yes. So you must use you must use Google Translate on your phone. Except that um, I used it when I was in Japan, and I wanted to go out for noodles. I'd landed very very late, and it was probably about eleven o'clock in the evening, and I wanted to go out and noodle have noodles. I'd been thinking of these noodles mm. the whole time I was on the aeroplane, mm. and I asked I asked the young lady at the reception of the hotel, could she please tell me where there was a noodle bar? And she didn't understand me, so I typed it into Google Translate and I showed it to her and she says, oh, oh yes. And she runs off and I think, oh, my God, where's she going? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what have I typed noodles. in? <laughs> <laughs> and she came, she came back with an earbud. <laughs> so <laughs> don't trust Google no, Translate yeah, ever. No, no, no. I went, this? She says, yes. It's, it's this. That's what that is, yeah. <laughs> Ramen, ramen, noodles. Ha ah, ha. Two block down, three block across. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, obviously, this is a, a, a quite a, um, a dynamic conversation. We're showing some dynamism oh, in the conversation. Yeah. I want to talk to you or ask you, I want you to talk to me, in fact, not me talk to you, uh, about Canon Cop. Uh, and we've got some sort of segue with Pinotage. They have a very famous Pinotage. Perhaps we have, they now have two famous Pinotages in terms of their estate label and they've got their black label. Kern Cop, for those who don't know, would be fairly widely considered as the, the first growth of South Africa, especially in Stellenbosch. Would you agree with that or am I overstating yes. things? Yeah, no, no, I think it's correct. If you take quali wine quality and provenance and length of tenure or whatever, you know, legendary status, definitely, yeah. Then why does nobody outside South Africa, and excluding some old British people who probably spent some time here being part of the, uh, the empire, etc., know about it? I had no idea about Cannon Cop when I came. I've heard of it, but I didn't know the, the esteem with which the South African wine community held it in. And I understand it now in terms of, for the, for the reasons you've just stated, in terms of its longevity, its uh, singular it focus on what it does, and yeah. it's an estate which obviously has, has, a, has a legal definition in South Africa, estate. It's not a, you can't just call anything estate. It has to be grown and bottled and... Uh, on that property to vinified, be called estate yeah. and vinified, yeah, absolutely. Uh, on that, so talk to me about that. I mean, do you okay? Wh I while you say wh that, I have to say while that you think, in, um, while you think, yeah, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, while you think, I'll tell you a little story about Cannon Cop. Christian Eads, who we both know, quite a, a prominent wine journalist in 
a journalist in South Africa, was invited to Australia to judge at a wine show as one of the international judges. And as Australian wine shows go, there's usually a chairman of the wine show dinner prior than the night before judging takes place where everyone brings a bottle from, you know, of their own and shares it and talks about it and lots of stuff. And he, he bought a, I can't remember the vintage, it was either 95 or 97, I think, Magnum of, um, of Paul Sauer, which is the, which is Cannon Cop's top wine. Yeah. It's a fancy wine. Like it's, it is the equivalent of a Magnum of Grange or a Magnum of, blend, yeah. of, of Latour. No, but in, in stature in yeah. terms of... In stature as well, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's won and the, it's, um, they've won the Pichon Lalande Trophy three times for the best Bordeaux blend in the world of the wines that were entered into the um, yeah. International Wine and Spirits Challenge, yeah. But, and he was taken aback that no one had ever heard of that wine or the winery, the producer, at this wine show full of uh, wine industry people. And I wasn't that surprised because uh, before moving here and visiting here, I'd never heard of it. Or I'd seen it, you know, in the periphery, but certainly not as the best producers of, of South Africa. Is it the cellar palette thing? No, I don't think it's a cellar palette. I think it's um, got a lot to do with... Um, where Canoncorp sells its wines, to okay. be quite honest. I don't think that if you walked into, um, well, you tell me, if, if I were to walk into a um, wine shop in Sydney, would they have Canoncorp Pinotage? No, no, this is, this is, this is exactly my you point. Know, and that's, that's no, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just don't, I think that um, historically, um, South Africa's strongest export markets for wine have been the UK, Germany, Holland, um, and the Nordic countries. Yeah. And that's because of our long history with them. We were colonized and um, we um, are of Dutch heritage. So, and a lot of our previous, uh, I mean, Neil Ellis and a lot of other winemakers from his generation did go to school in Geisenheim to, yeah. to make wine. So it's historic that we've always focused up the continent to Europe. And um, markets like Australia have been incredibly difficult for South African companies to break into. Mm. And I think that's probably why they've um, ignored them. And I mean, even if you take the, the US these days, um, you've got some South African producers that are doing good business in the US because they seem to understand the market. Yes. And others who, and others who just flounder there completely. So yeah. I think the reason why Australia hasn't heard about Canon. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about just Australia. Is that, um, look, I've come in. in um, I mean, I was part of the Sommeliers Association in South Africa for I think five years when I arrived. I, really? I stepped down last year or maybe the year before. I can't remember. And we hosted a lot of um, international Sommeliers, and virtually none of them had heard of. They'd all heard of Ivan Sadi. They'd all heard of Craig Hawkins. Uh, they'd all heard of the Manila News, but yeah, they, the sexy people. They didn't know about Canon Cop. Um, okay, so the the first reason is that people have been where they focus their markets. The second reason is that Johan is an exceedingly clever businessman, and um, he's got his good relationships with his distributors in Europe and the markets that he goes into. Yes. And I know that he doesn't, for example, spend a lot of money or doesn't 
spend a lot on public relations, yep. or reaching out to the journalists. The only time he does is send out a, a press release is when he wins the Pichon Trophy or some major trophy at an awards show. Mm. So he's not actively seeking exposure. Well, well he is actively markets. seeking. If he's entering in award shows, then he is actively he's, seeking because... In, in and that, that award show. And that is marketing... In that award show. Yeah, but that, that, that is marketing from 20 years ago in terms of... So he's, he's probably not had as much... I haven't looked at it, but mm. maybe his... Um, and look, the other thing that um, I know is as well is that um, you think about the wine writers that come out to visit South Africa. Yes. Um, they're always looking for something new, something exciting. Yes. It's gotten as bad where I've had um, a wine writer email me and say, tell me where I can go that's somewhere new, Cathy. These Stellenbosch people are all dull and boring. And you've, unfortunately... Um, you've got to convince the journalists time after time after time after time that you're not dull and boring anymore. Nobody wants to tell the, the Kanonkop story, but they want to tell the Kanonkop story. No, I mean, I, sorry, look, the Ibn Saadi and the I Craig Hawkins story. I don't, yeah. want it, I don't want it to seem that I have something in for Kanonkop. I like the lines. I really oh, do. Absolutely. And I think, they deserve, I think they deserve more press and more. I mean, obviously, Tim Atkins... 1,004 points or whatever he gave the, the 2015 Paul Sauer uh, brought some light on, international light on it, which was great. But it does seem odd that, um, that there is such a, a, a different contrast between um, the reputation it holds at home versus the reputation it holds internationally. But I want to pick you up on this point of the obsession with the new I wanted to maybe keep away from platter conversation because Philip's not here, but I can't resist now. As the associate editor, is that right? Did I have I? Have That's I correct. Up? Yes. Yes. One of the when you're filling out the platter forms as a producer um, to submit your wines to platter, one of the questions is, what has happened new in your wine in the last twelve <laughs> months? So I would submit to you that that's part of the problem, not part of the solution. Because obviously you're finding it difficult to write about the same wines and the quality of the wines and the minute changes and the, and, the, and, the, and the nuances through season to season. You're also looking for, and this isn't a gotcha, I mean, it, it's, it is a problem, I think, that people no, are always looking for something from new, from new South Africa. You know, if, if okay. someone's been in the market for four years, I know they're yesterday's news. They might have just bought out their best wine, but because they've been in the market for four years, they're yesterday's news. Now, so the way, if I can just explain the, the, why we ask for that information. Believe it or not, there are a large number of people who read Platter every year from cover to cover. And they do like seeing... Are they all called Tim Jones? Introductions. <laughs> I think he does. Yeah. Um, uh, no, he does because he's the proofreader. Yeah, of course um, he does. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so they like to see those, those introductions as being refreshed. They don't want to just see the same information in there. So Philip's brief to us as one of the as, as a writer for an introduction is to firstly make sure that you put the producer in context so you've got to say where they are established where they are 
give an indication of the kind of wine style that they do or what they're most well known for. Yes. So that if anybody who's not familiar with them will immediately be able to say, okay, so this is a really great producer in Stellenbosch and they specialize in, in red wines. Yeah. And then, um, so we're supposed to spend, and these introductions are not long. Hey? Sometimes you've only got 50 words. Yeah, I um, understand. So you've got to contextualize the guy. I have it, I have it on my desk at all times. Cool, because you need the telephone numbers, um, and then what's a phone? You, can I can I call yeah. using this thing? Are you sure? <laughs> and then it's the um, you add something new just to change it up because of the people that are always needing something. But yes, I do understand that we're always looking for something new, and it's really rather difficult. Um, though Johan was very excited about his automatic open top lager type stampers. Have you seen them? No. Um, yeah. no, 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 He was very excited about those. And then last year it was um, the new optical scanner. So there is, <laughs> I'm being yes. facetious. Yeah. They are, they are always incremental improvements that they're making quality. Yeah. Well, I, I just, yes, I, this, I'm not, this I, chasing I, I'm, for something new all the time. I understand the need difficult. to serve the, the 14 people who read platter from from cover to cover if if i get a petition of 15 people can we can we get that question removed is that all right or we get a an amendment to the question to the question what about no, slight, what that's about, my question what about that's what Philip's about question no what about a slight a slight amendment to the question saying what have you done in the past 12 months to make your to make your wine better this year that would be a much better phrase question and it would produce much more honest and helpful answers, I would think, rather than what is new in your winery, rather than we got a new fucking tractor and it's bright red or, you know, like we got 14 new tanks. I will put that to the editor. Yeah. As I said, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go Except too hard on players because I was either going to get JP or, or Philip on to, to, to put the, put the hard word down. Um, yeah, because I'm not a full-time employee. I'm yes. only a migrant worker. Yeah. Yes. Um, You're just the casual. Yeah, You're just the casual coffee lady, aren't you? Casual. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yes. Um, but yes, I'll, I'll put it. I'll put it to him. As a new producer, you get slightly different questions. But yeah, that's mm. cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, to go back to go back to your canon cook. Yes. Question. Um, yes. Thank you for uh, thank you for leading the conversation, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do find that um, in, in Europe, several people do know of Canon Cook, although it's not really everybody. I do tend to find out that they are the people who tend to read everything they can find voraciously. Yes. yes. Um, and they keep up to date. Um, I sympathize with, God, with sommeliers and other people who have to talk to people about wine every single day. They expect you to know everything. But it, we, it would we be nice. It would we be sommeliers do know everything. Nice. Yeah, I forgot. That's right. And especially <laughs> the Australian sommeliers, they know even more. Um, Don't get me started on those fucking master of wines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised I've stayed awake this yeah, long, to be, okay. fair, to be fair, Kathy. <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> I'll have to phone Michael Hillsmith right now and tell him. Yeah. You do, you do know that I was um, I, ju I was judging at Decanter the, the one year and um, I was only allowed to judge on the South African tables because um, 
they want an industry specialist judging for them. And we had one wine that came through from South Africa, obviously, but it was probably infected with Britannomyces. Um, I couldn't be 100% sure because I would prefer to have the tests to back me up. And um, the other people sitting on the table wanted to give it a gold. And um, here's one of these honesty questions again. And I said, no, you, I'm table chair and you're not giving this wine a gold. I refuse. Point blank. I'm mm. going to give it You Use your right of veto. Use my right of veto. And mm. um, so... Of course, that caused an argument at the table. And so um, John o Avery, who was the South African chair at that stage, came over and said to me, oh, come on, Kathy, aren't you being a little bit harsh here? It's a style everybody likes. And I appreciate that not everybody likes a style. And I said, no, nope, I refuse. Mm. And then Stephen Spurrier, as one of the chair um, overall judges, came across and said, listen, Kathy, I agree with John here, maybe you could just give it a little bit of leeway. This is a style that does really well in, in the UK. And I said, no. And next minute, um, the entire Australian contingent of judges who'd been judging in another room, led by Michael Hillsmith um, and then Tony Jordan, walked in, clapping. And I said, what's did, going on? Did they, they frog said, march in as the Gestapo, the, the, the Britannomites <laughs> Gestapo? <laughs> They marched in and they said the Australian table has just come to highly commend the South African table for refusing to award a wine with Britannomyces. With a spoilage. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the only time that those two countries have got yes, on, I think. Apparently, I think so. Um, and, um, yeah, so um, apparently Stephen Spurrier or, or, or John Avery, one of them had taken the wine to the Australians just to check that I was right. And yeah, oh, the Australians said the Australians said I was right, so I was right. Yeah, yeah. there is a uh, a quite a vicious intolerance uh, for Britannomyces in Australia. Oh yeah, but the ne the next year I was invited to do AWAC um, in Adelaide. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say next year I was invited just to do whites only. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, I then gave an Italian Nebbiolo of Barolo, a fairly high score, and it's. I was sitting in the front because that's where you put Masters of Wine and everybody else at this AWAC course was sitting. Yes. It's the Advanced Wine Assessment course that is yes, run yes. by the guys in Adelaide. Yeah. For the people who don't know, because you were explaining to them about UNTAS. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'd, you know, they'd said, who would give this wine 14 and who would give this wine 15 and who would give this wine 17? And I put up my hand and I just heard from the back of the room, it's got... Brett, you can't bloody well give it a high mark. <laughs> Turned right, I said, the wine is stable. <laughs> anyway. And it's good, Brett, not bad, Brett. <laughs> it's good, Brett. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was also told by somebody that, um, yeah, Brett's acceptable on Bordeaux because Bordeaux has the fruit character and the structure to handle Brett, but no, not on South African wines, never. Anyway. Yeah. We love with oh, these you see, I mean, we've, we've spoken about this at our, you've mentioned the tasting group that we're both a part of and the winemakers. Uh, it's a collection of industry people, some winemakers, some MWs, some salespeople like me and, and some journalist-ish type people and some keen amateurs. 
we, we taste, you know, mid-90s and mid-80s Bordeaux and Rhone wines, which are clearly got Britannomyces. And the winemakers say this is a phenomenal wine. Like, it's just so gorgeous and um, characterful and expressive. And then, then you go, well, what, what, if it, what if your wine's not like this? No, no, I'd hate it because it's got fret. So it's, it's a really, it's, it's an interesting uh, conundrum or what's the word? Um, it's, 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 a dic- no, it's not a dichotomy, but it's something, you know, conundrum is a very good word for it. Mm. But I mean, what I did learn from that AWAC experience is um, I came back home and I thought a little bit about it. And I take the position that if I'm tasting a wine and it's for me to drink and it's for me to put in my cellar and I'm taking the decision, I'm quite happy to drink a wine with a little bit of Britannomyces, the good Brit. But if it's in a competition and you don't know when that wine's going to be on the market, you don't know for how long it's going to be on the market, um, it's going to be other people who are probably spending money based on what score you've given it in the competition, yeah. then quite possibly we shouldn't be awarding that one. Yeah, that, that's actually an, that's, a, that's an interesting line of conversation. I mean, I I also judge for platter, um, but I'm I only go on the, the five star tasting, which is the blind part, because I, yeah. I I don't think I should uh, do the sighted part because I'm financially involved in the industry, and so I'm luckily lucky enough to to get asked by JP. I'm assuming JP is the person who. Who picks the panels, or is it is it a is it a a group effort? Oh, it's you. Oh, I have you to thank. Okay, well, thank you, Kathy. No, um, I, I put na- I put names forward for JP, and JP approves. Yes. Okay, right. Okay. Well, I, I luckily I uh, I survived that um, criteria <laughs> uh, selection, and it's an interesting one for me because when you're and for people who haven't judged wine in a formal setting before, in terms of wine after wine after wine. So we did Shannon and Syrah or slash Shiraz this year, last year and there was around about 100 wines of each category and you have to get it right. I mean, these are the best Shannons and the best Syrahs, which I would argue right. are the two, the, the, the best white and red categories, maybe white blends, you know, you could slip an argument there, but they're certainly in the, the top three or four categories that South Africa is producing at the moment. And it's not a personal preference. You have to be as objective as you can in a subjective game. How do you handle that? How do you handle that? That word again, honesty. But it was specifically and stylistic preference versus quality. It's, how, how, is that, how, how does your brain handle that or is it, have you not sort of? No, absolutely. I mean, I can, I can taste a wine and I can appreciate I like to think that I can taste a wine and that I can appreciate that it's well made, that the oak has been handled particularly well, that the extraction's been well judged, that there is ripe fruit, that there are nuances in that wine, that the wine is achieved balance. At the same time, it might not be a great variety that I'm particularly fond of or a wine style that I'm particularly fond of. Mm. But I can realise that for that particular style, it is an exceptionally good wine. And therefore, it does deserve to be recognised because otherwise, um, you know, you've got to be really, really difficult to try and keep personal preference out of it. Because, I mean, I happen, I happen to like a fair bit of 
acidity and um, that freshness you get from stems. And mm. you can imagine that that excludes quite a lot of wines um, that you get to taste each year. You've got to taste it within context. I've got a follow-up question. When you started at Plata in 07, 08, did you say? I think I wrote it down somewhere. I uh, started in... Full-time... Um, Full-time, I think... Sorry, when you, got, when you started getting paid? 2005. <laughs> yeah, when I okay. started getting paid yeah. by 2006. Okay, and before 2006, that... 2006, the 2006, yeah. If you can, I didn't them... taste. I didn't, I didn't taste before that. Just yeah. want to make it clear. I was okay. not a taster. Yeah. I, was, I, I helped Philip do editing, and I really was the putter out of any fires that came up. If he suddenly needed... Um, Oh, you, were the, you, you were the bouncer? I was the bouncer. Yeah, I had right. to do everything. If there were queries, if Philip didn't know, if, if I had to phone wineries and ask them questions, and hmm. yeah, I was, I was the putter out of I wasn't allowed to taste. I only ever okay. started tasting for platter once I had my Master of Wine. Okay. And please forgive the awkward way in which I'm going to ask this question because I've only oh, okay. sort of got the concept of it in my head now, is the difference between uh, what you're awarding points and your personal preference greater now than then? Is the, is this, is the separation oh. between what you actually enjoy drinking and what you're awarding points for, has it diverged or got closer or has it stayed similar ways apart? And it is, as you say, wine is a dynamic thing. Things change, preferences change. I'm assuming if you if you went back in time with your palate now, you would be scoring differently than you would be in 2006. Am I wrong there? I hope so. I hope I'm a better taster. I've yeah, this is my point. Since then. So what I'm saying is, are you making more adjustments now or less adjustments? Adjustments, and I'm not um, attributing a fault here or a, is it, is it easier or more difficult? Cause it's been obviously a, a very slow process from then to now. Did, did it's a complicated question to answer because it's very complicated to even ask. Because, so I, <laughs> uh, because the, the, the thing is, is that with platter, we're supposed to taste in context. So which means what? Refer, which means that you've got to refer to the track record of the wine. Ah, and I see. And you've got and you've got to look at the the information that, that the winemakers submitted and stuff. So So that track I record though, sorry Kathy, sorry to interrupt just to get clarification. Yeah. That track record is the score it got last year and the year before. Not the wine itself. It's just the score on paper. Correct. Yeah. The score on paper. Which may have been given by somebody else. Which may have been given by somebody else. So it's a different way of tasting or a different way of rationalizing things. So you, mm. you taste that wine and, you know, often you'll taste it and you'll say, and I'll, I'll, what I do is I taste the wines blind um, first. I don't look at the scores and I'm not that clever that I can remember what wines scored the year before or anything. Yeah. And once I've tasted blind, I'll then look at the scores and, you know, sometimes I'll go and I'll say, look at it and I'll say, Bang on. Uh, I think that's a solid three-star wine. Great. And you leave it there. But then, as you know, we've now started scoring um, 
on the 100-point scale as well. So if um, three stars is, I forget what three stars is, is three stars is 80 to 83, I think. I'm not Hang on, I've got, I've, I've got the Plato's Guide on my Have desk a look here. Quickly. Have yeah. a look quickly. Uh, here we go. Three stars is 80 to 82. 80 to 82. So I was one out. I, that, that's not a lot of margin, hey? No. So, uh, five, five, so stars, was... five stars has more of a double band. It's five points. Five yeah. stars is 95 to 100. 100. Well, which is what? So any... That's actually six points, isn't it? It's three times the amount of... Uh... It's three times. Yeah. It, it's, it's six points. So that 80, 80 to 82 is a three star. So yes, I've tasted it and I'll say, oh, great. This is a solid, um, solid three star. But what I might do is, um, or I, I might say, um, okay, now this is a three star, but I think it's just a three star. And I see that last year it got given an 82, but I think this is scraping in at a three star, so I'll give it 80. So that's where the nuances come in. No, I don't. I don't think that I'm, uh, to go back to the fact, do I think that I'm allowing more personal preference? No, 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 that wasn't the question. I, no, the, the, the question no. was, Kathy. the question was, no. do you think your personal preference has moved away from where you award points? Because as you said, obviously, earlier on, and I do the I same thing. Understand, I don't understand the question. Has my personal preference moved away from? Because when you said, um, I really like this style of wine, but they're not the wines that necessarily I should be awarding points for in terms of stems no, and acidity. That. I don't want to misquote you, so please. Oh, all right. Yeah, okay. All right. I, no, no, I don't think I meant that I shouldn't be awarding points for. But uh, no, I made that comment in that I said that my personal preference is for wines that are fairly high in acidity. And yes. That stemmy, stemmy character. However, I cannot only be awarding those wines. Yes. The top marks or the okay. more points. Now I've got to be objective and I've got to admit mm. that there are other relevant styles and yeah. I've got to judge those other relevant styles as objectively and as fairly as I can. So that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, cool. Okay. Nice. I think it's an important point to talk about in terms of because people just think, oh, no, Kathy only likes funky, cool stuff, so that's why you know, that wine didn't get points and blah, 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 blah. So I think it's, it's a really important point to talk about. Not, a, not at all. I mean, there's, um, I think on the team, I'm one of the people who has um, a very broad appreciation of a broad spectrum of wine styles. Yes, I would agree with that one wholeheartedly. So um, as with any critics, whether you've got art critics or movie critics or literature critics there are those people who specialize there are also people those people who have favorite styles and um yeah if you're reading the guide as well you should understand from where the taster is coming that's why we put initials at the end of um so you can see who's tasting the wine yeah. i mean I, I know that there are a couple of movie critics um who i would never trust um but there are those that who's, who I really enjoy the movies that they recommend. Yes. And similarly, got to be similarly with wines, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Kathy, what's exciting you about South African wine at the moment? What's the first thing that comes to mind when people ask you, what's happening in South African wine? It's, uh, I, my answer is um, one that I'm sure that many people have given to you. I think that the most exciting thing still 
for me is, although it's a trend that's been happening for a while, is the focus on the vineyards. Yeah. That people are prepared to invest money in vineyards, that are prepared to look for new vineyard areas. And along with that goes the protection of um, older vines, finding older vines, but not only old vines. It's just this enthusiasm for investing in new vineyard areas and investing in old vineyards to make them better. That, I think, is really still very exciting. On the wine front, because everybody has to have an answer with alcohol involved, I really... I really do like the trend towards the less extracted, more Burgundian, maybe even more Dolcetta-ish kind of red wines in South Africa. And For far too long, I've found sorry, yeah. red wines to be bedompig and... Um, That's the second time you've used that word. Too extracted. For the non-Africans, yeah. yeah, for the non-Africans listening, can you roughly translate? I can't translate that. Duckfoot. Uh, oh, oh, that's wave. That's, that's, that's heavy, heavy, heavy handed. Heavy handed is probably heavy yeah. handed or heavy or uh, built like a brick shit house. Does that yeah, translate into Australian? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah we're, we're on board now. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> now you're talking so about that's the exciting, the exciting trend. What I would like to see, what I really would like to see is some new varieties being planted and coming online. So I'm quite excited about Assertico um, from the Jordans. I also thought... Um, I you were going to say from Santorini there for a second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the Jordans. From the, from the Santorini and Stellenbosch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Evan made a secret blend for Japan. Um, secret blend it's not secret anymore secret blend for the it's not secret anymore but that had some assertico and i think that was planted up the west coast a few about seven years ago yeah um how do you sell a nursery block wine sorry how do you sell how do you sell a nursery block wine by calling it a secret blend a secret blend okay all right <laughs> yes, mm, yes. And um, but, but it, it was a lovely wine. It was great. I was last year. So yeah, so that's that's, okay. what, that's what's exciting, and that's what I'd like to see. I'd really mm. like to see some more white and red varieties. Um, and it's purely from a selfish point of view. I'm getting tired of just drinking Cabernet and Merlot and Syrah and how much Merlot do you drink? Carignan. Very, very, very little. Yeah, I drink so you, my Merlot in Bordeaux blends. Yeah, you um, taste it. You taste it, but you don't drink it. Can I ask you about Merlot, though? I mean, MW at the end of your name suggests that you're interested more than the fine wine market. You're interested in the business of wine. I mean, that's part of the the syllabus of Master Absolutely, of Wine. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Merlot is. It, it's still the biggest, as I understand it. And I, you know, I'm not a uh, a lover of these statistics, but I, they seem to be, they get thrown at me quite often. Merlot is the biggest drunk wine. I don't know how to, how to phrase it. It's the most consumed red wine in South Africa in terms of Correct. More, more bottles of Merlot get drunk by South Africans than any other variety, red variety. Well, they've probably, yes, they've probably got a lot of other red <clears throat> varieties in them too. But yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it brings you back to that uh, freedom of what you can put in the bottle as long as it sort of tastes like Merlot. Is that a good thing or a bad thing or is it a shit question? 
A bit of all three, to I would honest, think. To, no, it's a bit of all three, but to be honest, um, and in particular, thinking about the business of wine, we want our wineries not only to survive, we want them to thrive. And we want the supplementary businesses that are around the wineries to survive and thrive and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, we also want our wines to improve. And I think that we have to accept that um, there are different levels of wine consumers. Yes. And if, if Merlot is doing a job, it, whether it's doing a cash cow job for some wineries, and I suspect it does a cash cow job for a lot of some wineries, and it gives them the cash flow that they need to get over the first six months after harvest or whatever, that's brilliant. At least they're not drinking gin. At least they're not drinking beer. At least they're not drinking, consumers are not drinking other spirits. They're drinking wine. It just so happens it's Merlot. I might not particularly drink it, but you know what? That's only me, and I'm only one person. I can't influence a whole industry in terms of my consumption. You can fucking try, though, Cathy. Listen, I, I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> when, when they're about to put out the Woolworths results, they phone me and they say, Kathy, we need to show a little bit of more profit. Could you please go and buy it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that was the first question. What was exciting me? What was the next question? What, where we can improve? What we're doing wrong, where we have to improve. South no, Africans. Not, not necessarily what we're doing wrong. That, that wasn't uh, the framing of the question. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Maybe I framed the question incorrectly because that's not what I meant. I meant where is the potential for greatest improvement in South Africa? That was the question on. For the South African industry? Yes. For South Africans looking abroad? First one. For the South African industry. industry. Because principally, this in this podcast is about South African wine and the story of it. So let's talk about that. Is do you think there's a massive uh, underperforming sector? Is it is it the brandy sector? Is it MCC? I didn't know before I came here with Cannon Cop, and maybe I was just ill-informed, but I wasn't. I mean, I was actively. No, you weren't. Was, you were active in the industry. I was more interested in South Africa than probably any other... Anybody else, yeah. ...at the time. And I didn't know MCC was a huge thing. I didn't know Brandy was a huge thing. In terms of our markets abroad and maintaining that profile, um, South Africa was the seventh biggest producer in the world. I think we've just slipped to the eighth. Um, but... Is it that high? Really? Okay. And, and a, lot of it, a lot of it is bulk. Um, I see. It's not necessarily a problem that a lot of what we sell is bulk. If we're selling it at prices that mean that our wineries and producers are making money and they can afford to pay their staff properly and they can afford to reinvest into the industry, then it doesn't matter if you sell bulk because, you know, there has to be bulk. Somebody has to do it. Um, I think that we need to, but we we don't, we lag behind. We're still considerably lower in per bottle than many other wine producing countries. So if you go into a bottle store in London, um, you'll find that the cheapest Chablis, which is really just, as they say in the UK, bog standard, the cheapest Chablis you can get is probably selling at about £12. And then you'll start looking for um, 
a South African wine, and you'll find maybe a South African wine that streets better is selling at seven pounds. So if, if I could wave a magic wand and have one wish for the South African industry is that we could go back to when we made those pricing errors and just fix our pricing structures. Yeah, I, okay. don't know, I don't know how we drag those prices up. New Zealand did it exceedingly well, but I think... Because well, New Zealand doesn't operate off a, off a bulk industry. No, they don't. They did, I mean, and they did it off their, off yeah, their New Zealand I mean, that, selling your blank. I think that's the answer. Um, I mean, Woza, and not their fault, their KPIs, their, their targets are in volume, not in value. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's, it's not, not hugely surprising that the, the whole industry is geared towards selling volume rather than quality value. And it's not Woza's. No, it I'm, I'm not putting all the blame on Woza. That's no, not what I'm doing. Not, it's not, it's not Woza's fault at all. There's, no. Because for all the good work... I think they do an amazing job given their funding. For, yeah, for, exactly. You know how far Rand goes when you're trying to buy a double-page spread in the New York Times? No way. Well, not trying um, to buy a beer to buy. It doesn't go fucking anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for, for all the good work that has been done... Um, by spreading the old vines message, the Shannon message, the new wave message, um, the revolution message. And then somehow this bulk wine still goes out, gets bottled in Holland or gets bottled in the UK, and it gets stuck on a shelf with a funny giraffe picture and sold at an abysmal price. It's, it's really sad. And there should maybe be some tightening up on that side if they can look at that and tighten it up. But yeah. Um, uh, where and, would the, uh, they'd have to replace that revenue somehow. They do. Um, yeah, what, who was it? Don Tooth also always talks about a wine of relevance. Mm -hmm. And potentially South Africa doesn't really have a wine of relevance at this point in time. We have wines that are getting there. And yeah. by wine of relevance, I mean a wine that's consistently produced of, at high volume, but of good quality. Yeah. So at the moment, speaking, all, our, to, all our wines sorry, of yeah. relevance, are, yeah, all our wines of relevance are small productions. Yes. Um, you know, the, the people are raving about um, Lucas from Lochrenberg's wines and um, the small quantities that you get from the Mullineux and from Thorn and Daughters, etc. Um, and yet... And, and those so inconsiderate really, pricks just don't make enough wine. And they don't make enough wine. <laughs> it's really ridiculous. It's very inconsiderate um, of them, isn't it? It is. And then, but you do have, for example, um, um, coming from Rupert and Rothschild, um, you've got their wines that yes. um, are reaching relevance. I think they're putting out nearly a million bottles. Um, yeah. You've got chocolate block that is yes. becoming a wine of relevance yeah. at this point in time. And we need more wines of relevance to tell a better South African story. Yeah. Um, On a different podcast, I was chatting to people about this and talking about sort of the, the wine that introduces people to wine drinkers around the world, introduces people to South Africa, like Gigal Cotteron does to... Yeah. To warmer, uh, warmer France. I mean, Richard Kelly, who you've, who you've referenced, was talking about Wolf Trap and Porcupine Ridge as possible, possible candidates. 
which is the chocolate box little cousins. Yes. And I was talking about to um, Cassidy Dart uh, yes. about secateurs being that wine. If only they could make more of it and get it out there. Because I think that actually is a irreplicable wine. You can't make secateurs Chenin Blanc anywhere else in the world. You can't. Secateurs would be a brilliant one. Um, he does have really good... Ex um, I think I've seen secateurs in the United States and England and Germany. He's got great distribution, but if he had more, mm. it would be so much better. But it's at the price point yeah. where people can afford to and buy it's it. At the right, it's, it's at the right price point. It can be a Tuesday yeah. night drink yeah, for because anyone in the world. Can, yeah, because Classique and, and Chocolate Block are slightly out there in terms of pricing. But also stylistically and variety, they don't really speak of South Africa. They speak well, they of Stellenbosch more. They speak, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So wines, wines of relevance. Yeah, I think that's where we. That's another wish for the South African industry. I just do think that the industry has come such a long way, even in this very short thirty years that I've been seriously drinking wine and paying attention to it. And it's wonderful to share everybody's success stories. Going forward, we do know that we have to work exceptionally hard and it's going to take every single one of us working as a brand ambassador for Wine South Africa. Um, and yes, hopefully sharing stories that are Pinotage, Shiraz, Assertico, Shannon, mm. and a whole bunch of other things as well. Cool. But it's exciting time to travel and um, everywhere I go, people love the wines that I take and I show them. Um, I'm sure they tell that to all the girls, but I'm hoping that they reserve an extra special yeah. place in their heart for South Africa. Okay, you say, oh, thank you very much for, uh, oh, for no, your it's time. It's a pleasure. It's a bit like it's been ages. It's already nearly 10 o'clock. Yeah, it's okay, it's though. It's fine. Now I'm wide away.